Today's reading is from Romans 8, 28 through 39. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things. We are more than victorious through him who has loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Little husband and wife, Tam do a work today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, that you are working through not just your people together as we saw in that screen. You work through your people. You work through real humans. You work by your Holy Spirit speaking to us. Spirit, come. Minister to us, Lord. Many of us come in here with burdens and heaviness that's beyond us, and we tried our best to control it. We tried to manage it. We tried to make sure that it's in line, but it's beyond us. And we now say we surrender our hearts and minds and thoughts and stories to you, Lord. And we ask that you'd bring healing now. Jesus is here in your midst. And if you're willing to open up your hands and open up your hearts, open your mind and say, Jesus, here I am. Have your way. My life is unmanageable beyond, apart from you. I need you. He's here with you. And I ask, Lord, that you would not allow anything that I say to be in the way of what you want to communicate to your beloved this morning. We ask this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to see you on this amazing sunshine morning. Rain, rain, go away and never return, please. Sorry for all of you who love the rain. It's just that my prayers are competing with yours right now. So um, as Morgan mentioned, we're coming to our final talk in this Easter Tide series that's been in Romans chapters 6 through 8 that we have called In Christ We Rise. And each week we've explored the ways that the resurrection causes us to rise to new life, both in this life and the one to come. 
Today we come to the passage that's asking the question, how does the resurrection help us rise from our fear of the future? Because I don't know about you, but the temptation to fear the future is real. And the longer that you live life, the more you realize that. The longer that you taste loss, the more you understand that. The more you experience dreams not working out quite the way that you thought they were, the more that you come to grips with the fact that the future, it cannot be controlled. And there are fears that creep in. I just returned from a few days away with a group of pastors and leaders who are doing incredible work around the world. Each year we connect to pray together, to laugh together, to share meals together, and in some cases cigars together, to rejoice together, and in some cases to weep together. And one thing that each of us also shared together this past week was a degree of uncertainty about the future. One man's wife is dealing with cancer. Another's wife is facing some horrific health issues. Another is entering uh, into his later years and he wants the next 20 years to really count. Another's moving cross country uh, to begin a new phase of ministry. One man's teenager is showing tangible signs of rebellion and depression. And you know what? It's very likely that the person sitting right next to you or in front of you is carrying similar questions of uncertainty. Or it's you. You don't know about the job, how it's going to work out. You know how, how the finances are going to pan out. You don't know how the relationship is going to come about. You might face uncertainty regarding your health or your hopes, and you're not quite sure what's to come. And it brings fear. A few years ago, journalist Stuart Jeffries wrote an article in The Guardian, the UK paper, titled, Welcome to the New Age of Uncertainty. The article is a fascinating look of the sudden political, financial, and cultural shifts right before Brexit, right before the American political uh, new inauguration of a new president. And so, hence the title, Welcome to the Age of Uncertainty. He says, as a 21st century British parent, I am, like you, perhaps already living inside of a world of uncertainty. It's insecure about what the future holds. So then, every choice feels like a gamble. Every decision relies on making a prediction about an unpredictable future. To make a plan for a life in such circumstances feels like a fool's wager. Paul an apostle and a pastor is writing to a community of Christ followers in first century Rome. They face a future as uncertain, maybe more than yours. With persecution, hostility towards their faith, how can they possibly face a future with confidence when members of their community and their family are being extracted, they're being removed, they're being physically tormented by people who are opposing their faith in this, re this resurrected Jesus. And in maybe one of the most quoted verses of the Bible in Romans 8.28, the Holy Spirit through Paul addresses that fear with good news. You ready? Here's what God says to you and to them. In all these things, I'm conspiring for your good. And all these things I'm conspiring for your good. I like the word conspiring. 
Conspire means to act in harmony toward a common end, and it often includes a secret plot to the detriment of another. I want you to keep that in mind for later. Because what I like about that word is that it involves acts of surprise and secrecy and subversion. And these verses tell us that in all things, God is conspiring for your good. There's a conspiracy happening. Beyond all of the conspiracies that you find in YouTube, there's a conspiracy in Scripture that God is working for your ultimate good. In your hardship, God is conspiring for your good. In your uncertainty, God is conspiring for your good. In your foolishness, even. And in your weakness, God is conspiring for your good. But there's two things that you need to know about that good. One, that good is often misunderstood. And two, the good is guarded by immeasurable love. So first, yeah, we know, okay, Paul is saying God is conspiring for my good. But how is that good often misunderstood? Verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Through Paul, the Holy Spirit is saying that in all things, God is conspiring for your good, but that good is easily misunderstood. Why? Well, sadly, there's a problem with the way that many people treat this verse. You know, there's a way, there's a good way, there's, there's ways that are incorrect to read scripture, right? It's important that you understand and you learn how to read the Bible in the particular text and narrative that it was originally written. Very important. Sidetrack. Anyway. Sadly, there's a problem with the way that many people treat the interpretation of this scripture. The good is often misunderstood. Maybe you've heard people say something like, yeah, I know you lost your job, but you can be sure that God's going to give you a better one because all things work for good to those who love him. Or, it's okay your fiance left you. God has a better one for you. Romans 8.28 promises, dot, dot, dot. The good mentioned here is often misunderstood when it's both too narrow and too focused on the here and now. What do I mean by too narrow? Notice verse 29. Paul says, there is a goal to the good that God is conspiring on your behalf. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be, notice the word, circle it, underline it, take a picture of it, conformed to the image of his son so that he would Jesus, be the firstborn among many. What's the goal that God is conspiring toward? We often think only in terms of material or temporal means. Don't get me wrong. If there's one thing that Jesus' incarnation teaches, it's that God is infinitely interested both in the material and the spiritual realm. For example, this morning in our pre-gathering prayer, we prayed for God to bless us with a great air conditioning unit for this massive auditorium during the summer months when all of us get a little too sweaty. God cared. And then when we prayed about that, somebody else in the room says, thank you, Jesus, that you care for little details like air conditioning. Oh, thank you, God, that you care about AC. I don't want you to think that God is not caring about the material realm. 
It's just that God's goal is that in all things, you are being conformed more and more to the image of his resurrected son, who's the firstborn, the first resurrected amongst many brothers who will enter into that new creation life. Meaning that trusting Jesus brings you into adoption, into the resurrection life. And it's an adoption where you receive the family DNA. The Holy Spirit indwells you with the goal of conforming you into the image of Jesus. So that you love more like Jesus. So that you are more settled in your identity like Jesus. So that you're more filled with the fruit of the Spirit like Jesus Love and joy and peace and kindness and patience and gentleness and self-control so that you're courageously committed to truth and justice and mercy just like Jesus so that you know that the Father delights in you just like he delights in his son Jesus. That's who the Spirit is conforming you into. That's the goal that God is bringing into your life. Your good is beyond material. It's eternal. That's why Paul can say regarding his own affliction in a letter to another church he pastored in Corinth, therefore, we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction, which a lot of times, gang, depending on how old you are especially, it doesn't feel momentary, does it? It doesn't feel light. But in light of an eternal plan, an eternal good that God is doing in your, your life, Paul says, in light of this light of affliction and uh, momentary affliction, it's producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So back to that word conform. It carries the imagery of a potter in clay. Some of your translations say that he, you've been molded into the image of Christ. And like a potter, God sees the finished goal. He's working in you. He's applying pressure. Maybe he'll use a particular sharp object to even allow certain cuts so that you can be molded into, shaped into, conformed into like the one who is of incomparable glory. When I know that God is conspiring for my highest good, it increases my ability to relax. In Boston, we have a difficult time relaxing. It increases my, my ability to relax because I realize I'm not controlled by blind chance or fate or my ability to crush it in my business, my organization, or my education. I don't need to fear life or circumstances. Why? Because I realize that God is repurposing my problems and my difficulties. When I realize that there's a goal for my good, it changes the way that I face my present problems and disappointments. I wasn't feeling this sermon, man. I was with a very, very rock star, solid group of real deal followers of Jesus all week. I was filled but I just wasn't feeling this text for a while. I got home and just the re-entry phase away from like retreat life back into real life. And then it wasn't until yesterday afternoon that I sat with this and I realized, oh my gosh, I can rejoice knowing that God's ultimate goal is my good and my highest good is being conformed into the image of his son. 
as you know, Nia's on maternity leave, and so we had our very good friend Tina and her husband Dave join us this past week. She came to lead worship with us, and a group of friends planned a small surprise birthday party for her. And um, two of her friends took her out for a meal while people were back at the house preparing for the surprise. And uh, Tina, I meant to ask you for permission for this before, but I forgot. I'll never do it again, I promise. And so they're out to, they're, they take her out to dinner to kind of like, there's nothing to see here, you know. And they, as they go out to dinner, two of the friends say, oh, pff, the kids need me back at home. We got to head back home. I got to, I got to, she's like, wait, what? You took me out to dinner and we're just going back now already? But she didn't know that back at the house, there were friends planning her highest good. <laughs> A surprise celebration with family and friends and meals and gatherings and there. It was there that she realized, oh my gosh, there's something better here than what I had before. Paul is essentially saying that oftentimes in life we face disappointments and we think, wait a second, this was where my dream was. You brought me here to have this certain thing and to celebrate and now you're changing it up on me? You're taking it away from me? Not knowing that ultimate good exists beyond even this life. If I really grasp what Paul is saying here, I then begin to confidently face the future knowing that in all things, God is conspiring for my good, even in difficulty, which prevents me from a few pitfalls surrounding pain in life. You ready? Number one, it keeps me from being prideful about my pain. Some religious people, or sometimes I should say religious people, and I'll include myself in there, we tend to wear our pain as a badge of honor. It makes us feel more virtuous and more noble than others. But this text doesn't say that the things that God brings or even allows to happen that should never have happened, right? Think of abuse, for example. That was never in God's economy. And yet we're not to rejoice in the things. Paul doesn't say that. He never says rejoices in the things themselves. Difficulties aren't to be enjoyed or welcome. They are not good, but their results can be. Who you're being made into as you're trusting God with your pain can be used for good. And it keeps us from identifying solely with what our pain is, which we can tend to do sometimes, right? Because we want to feel sorry for ourselves, or we want others to feel sorry for us. But when I also grasp that God is conspiring for my good, it prevents me also from being pessimistic about my pain. Sometimes I can think, wow, for sure, nothing good can come from this. The text denies that, though. If God is working out our good in everything, then that means that when I perceive, or the things that I perceive as good things or bad things, God is able to take those things and repurpose them for my ultimate good and his goal in my life, which is conforming me to the image of his son. And that awareness is what led the 18th century pastor and hymn writer to say this. Man, this is deep and powerful. Spend a moment with this. Are you ready? Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. 
It also keeps me, lastly, from living in shame around my pain. All really means all. So it includes our backsliding. It includes our sin. Now, sin is always terrible, right? It always wreaks havoc in our lives, leads to addiction, leads to separation in my best relationships. And yet, God is so great that he weaves even our failings and our pain and our problems that are self-induced into our ultimate good. God can even use our sins and failures to humble us and teach us a right view of ourselves and have a greater appreciation for the love and tenacity and forgiveness and kindness of Jesus that leads me to repentance. He makes use of sin to show Christians the depth of our frailty and the deep dependence on the Spirit. Of course, this does not excuse our sin, but it does cause us to look for how God is working through it, leading us to a place of repentance and deeper dependence on the Spirit. And we might echo the words of Joseph, whose brothers wronged him, abandoned him, abused him. But he comes to this place in his life where he's so settled in the providence of God that he looks at them and he says what? What you meant for evil, God repurposed it for good. Because God is conspiring for good in all things for those who love him. Secondly, it's not just the point that this good is often misunderstood. Now, you know what? I don't want to move on just yet. I want to pause. And I want to ask you to take an honest inventory and ask yourself, where have I assumed that God was not good? Because I thought that the thing that I was pursuing and holding on to was my highest good. Just take a moment. You begin to name that. That begins to disarm the power of that in your life. Which leads us, secondly, not just to the fact that this good is often misunderstood. This good is guarded by immeasurable love. Notice that the people that God is conspiring for in verse 28, Paul says, firstly, it's those who love God. And because they love God, that's how you know that they've been called by God according to his purpose. Verse 28, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love God. Those who have been called according to his purpose. Notice Paul doesn't say, to as many as believe in God. To as many as agree with God. He says, to those who love God. (laughs) This is a powerful phrase right here. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, just rock star of a preacher, ancient, well, not that ancient, but anyway. He says, I believe that Paul had a special reason for using the term love rather than the term believing at this point. One of the best ways whereby we can decide immediately if we love God or not is our reaction to adversity. There are many people who, when trials and tribulations arise, they give up. They feel that they've been let down. 
Jesus said, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he or she is the one who loves me. Verse 30, Paul says, you didn't earn God's love. (laughs) You're responding to this, this love because of the way that God loves you and has loved you in such a way that he's drawn you to him. Paul says in Romans and another place, no one just wakes up and says, you know what, I think I'm really going to give my whole life to God and, to, and take up the way of the cross today and go meet with a group of people who sing and praise and do weird things. That's the life I'm choosing. No, God has drawn you into this. Notice the phrase, he called you according to his purpose. It means that you've been called out of your old way into the Jesus way through a relationship with him. And it's a relationship that requires you to love him with your mind, body, and soul. It's not a surprise to God that some will love him and some won't. When Paul uses the second word, those he foreknew, it implies that God foresees All who will believe, but this word suggests more than an intellectual knowledge. It implies a deep care. And I don't really get into care to get into all of the Calvinist, Arminian argument and all of that sort of thing. At the end of the day, God is mystery, man. And if he's small enough for me to figure out, he's too small for me to worship. But the words here are... I mean, it's hard to escape the fact that God foresees, foreknows all who will respond to him. And it's actually the same word that's used when God knew his chosen people would cry out to them, to him from Egypt, and he would choose them to follow him into the wilderness. And this foreknowledge is what causes a believer to be predestined, which means to decide beforehand. Clearly, a decision is involved in the process of becoming a Christ follower, but it's God's decision before it's ever yours. And that's why John says, we love him because he first loved us. And now, because you've been called and predestined and brought into a new family, the new family of Jesus, you're now adopted by God into this new family of Jesus, you've been justified. And the word justification is more than just an acquittal or even an acceptance. It's a declaration that we sinners are now righteous in God's sight. He's transferred the righteousness of the firstborn, Christ, to his brethren, and he became sin with our sins so that you might become righteous with his righteousness. And because you've been justified, God, this is the most incredible word ultimately. All of these are called the golden chain in verse 30. Because you've been justified, God sees you in the future as already being glorified. That's amazing. The you that you didn't even know you could become in a world that you always longed to live with people that you would be tempted to fall down and worship if you didn't know better. That's where God already sees you existing. That's who God already sees you as. When we look in the mirror, we see all of the things we know are inside. And sometimes we're tempted to just despise the image. That's not how God sees you. Glorified. Glorified. 
the final paragraph of the final book in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the characters finally enter into eternal glory, and when they do, it says about them, all their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's where God sees you. That's who you are in Christ. Our destiny is to be given new bodies in a new world, both of which will be transfigured with the glory of God. Glory is goodness completed. It's God's goal for you. So Paul is so certain in this final stage that although it's still future, he puts it in the same errorist tense as if it has already happened. And what Paul is promising in 8.28 then is not that every difficult experience will lead to something good in this life necessarily. The good God may have in mind may involve your next life entirely. He may take you out of a secure, well-paying job. Right now, that brings a sting, doesn't it? It does for me. He may take you out of a materialistic lifestyle that doesn't honor kingdom priorities, and you may never have as good a job again. And maybe he wants to set you free from an engagement to be married because he wants to use you in a ministry that would require difficult or impossible situations for someone who was married. Remember, it's by sharing in Christ's sufferings that we eventually will be able to share in his glory as well. Now, again, I'm not saying that God is not interested in material blessings. We see all throughout the Old Testament that God is a good father who delights to give his kids good gifts, not just in the life to come, but in this life also. I'm witnessing this in the lives of my friends. But this confidence is primarily for the future where God wants everyone who loves him to fully live. Remember we said this good is guaranteed by love? This means that good things are bad things actually for those who don't love God. Meaning, we can be very very religious and not love God. Not be intimately United to Jesus. You remember when Jesus comes to the church in Revelation, he says, oh my gosh, I'm so sad for you right now. You have turned from me and left your first love. Outside of Christ, I have the illusion that I am self-made. I'm in ultimate control of my life. And at least bad circumstances can actually wake up the follower of Christ to their true humanity. It causes us to actually wake up to how dependent we are on Jesus for transformation. But when an unbelieving heart experiences a string of successes and pleasures that you see all day long on your Instagram feed, it only reinforces the illusion and can make worse the sins of the heart like pride and overconfidence and self-centeredness, etc. They begin to grow and take root like bitterness does, and it begins to take over a soul and make me cold in my love. But for followers of Jesus, those who love God, the promise is that you can face 
the future with confidence, knowing that in all things, God is conspiring for your good. The problem is that my love is not immeasurable. Remember we said this is guarded by immeasurable love? Here's the problem. My love is very measurable. My love is very movable and very frail, actually. So what hope do I have? We said it was guarded by immeasurable love. And you know that you can boast of (laughs) your love for God in here and then sow discord out there just as soon as you leave. But this love is not immeasurable because it's dependent on me. It's immeasurable because it's dependent upon the one who came into this world and showed us what love really is. It's immeasurable because it's God's love. And Paul is so overwhelmed by the goodness of God that he begins to ask a series of questions almost in the form of trash luck. Trash talk. Like good trash talk isn't telling you something. It's asking good questions like what now? What's, what then? What are you going to do now? That's good trash talk. <laughs> Verse 31, Paul says, hey, so what then are we going to say about these things? What's left to say? What else can we add? And then Paul answers a series of questions with five more rhetorical questions. Verse 31, he says, well, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God who has purposed our glory is all powerful, why, are, why am I afraid of any opposition at all? Verse 32, he who didn't spare his own son, how will he not also give us all things? (laughs) In other words, if God has purposed our glory and is willing to give up his most precious possession, even his own life, why would I worry about my needs? Verse 33, who's going to bring a charge against us? It's God who justifies. In other words, if the God who has purposed our glory has declared us righteous, why ever feel guilty or unforgiven again? Or 35, 34, who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, was raised, and is also now praying for you, interceding for you. In other words, if Christ who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death is standing before the Father right now on your behalf, why ever feel guilty, shame, or unforgiven again? And lastly, he just closes, summarizes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the last question because it answers all the other questions the only thing that would really, that we have to really fear, that would really harm us, is to be separated from the love of Christ. See, the purpose of these questions is to almost beat into our minds, beat out the disbelief that we are saved totally by grace, and therefore we are completely safe to face life without fear. It is incredible, relentless, intense logic. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on this book calls this logic on fire. Paul's saying, think. Are you afraid? Verse 31, you aren't thinking. Are you worried? Verse 32, you aren't thinking. Are you feeling guilty? Verse 33, you're not thinking. You're not taking it back to him. (laughs) You've been saved by grace 
and you've been justified. And these are not dry doctrines. They are life. And the Spirit breathes through them to bring ignition of fire into our life. And that's what we need. That's what our city needs. It doesn't just need good, true beliefs, although it needs that. It needs people who have that belief and that logic is on fire in their life. And now, like many of us, Paul's first readers might have looked around and saw a lot of things that counter this idea that God is conspiring for the good. Paul lists them out. That's trouble. It's hardship, persecution. They all are coming to these first century Christians. Famine, nakedness, danger, and sword are coming to many. In fact, the experience of God's people in this day is that they're often going to face challenges that are going to make them feel like they're dying every day. They're facing death constantly. He's quoting verse, Psalm 42 and verse 36. Does this mean that we've been t- detached by God's love? Does the fact that that's coming your way mean that God has removed his favor on your life? No, Paul says. In fact, in these worst of circumstances, we are more than conquerors. Man, this is, a, this is a truth that God is inviting us to live in through. Christians triumph through and over the worst that life brings. Why? Because God does not lose any of those that he foreknew. God is always conspiring for the good of those who love him. He is in loving, sovereign control in every aspect of human history. So remember I said God is conspiring And it's kind of a shady word maybe because it also involves making secret plans against another that brings their harm. Listen, you're more than conquerors in Christ because on the cross, God was conspiring for your good, not against people, against spiritual forces of wickedness and principalities that are conspiring against you. You live in contested space. And on the cross, Jesus is disarming all forces of wickedness to make you more than a conqueror in Christ who loves you. And to this end, Paul draws this section of the letter into a resounding doxology of praise to the sovereignty of God. In fact, this doxology, Paul says, I'm convinced, verse 38, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not human experience, death. Not spiritual realm, angels or demons. Not time, present or future. In anything that opposes God's people, any powers, in space, height, depth, length, whatever, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus because of his immeasurable love and all these things, God is conspiring for their good, for your good. You know those movies where the hero breaks in and says, hey, come with me if you want to live? Or in a Lego movie, it's even better. He's all, come with me if you don't want to die. (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying to you and me today. I want you to take my hand. I want you to come with me. I'm going to guard you with my eternal love and all things. I will stand in solidarity with you. I will conspire for your ultimate good so that you will be one who says to others, come with me. I'm going to show you the one who will make you live or not die. So 
We're going to close right now, and we're going to do a practice together where you're going to be silent, and you're going to consider a few questions with the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for these words to us. They are beyond our understanding. They're bigger than our imagination. So would you open our imagination just slightly more as we come to the table? We partake of these objects, the bread and the wine, that remind us that you give your love over your dead body. And as we sing together, these truths become a part of our body, part of our soul. We ask this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.